Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse -verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm standing here this morning for only one reason, because God is good. It's been another good week, and I'm glad to see all of you, and I'm glad that by God's good grace, we've all gathered again to worship the King and to look into his word. My prayer is that God is lifted up this morning, that his son is glorified, that the saints are edified. And the sheep get fed. That's my prayer for the morning. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're getting close to the end of 2 Corinthians. And I'm just going to put this out there. I think that we, GCA, as a church, now have a sufficient amount of Israelology behind us. I now think after years and years of talking about the differences among the first century church between the Jerusalem church and the Gentile church, I think we could finally teach our way through the book of James, which I have been uh, hesitant to do in previous years because there are controversies involved, but I think we could work our way through those controversies. I think we're all grown up enough now that we're going to be able to approach that book. So that's what I'm thinking. If you have a different opinion, let me know. And the emails, cards, and letters are coming in as people continue to uh, vote for our Wednesday night next book. But let me say, not to dissuade anybody with their opinion, but so far, Ezekiel is winning by a landslide. I was down to Ezekiel or uh, Esther, and so far everybody's going, hold on to Esther. Esther's fine later, but Ezekiel, you just did Daniel, you got to do Ezekiel. And I think that's because people just want to see me do the work, because it's, it's a tough book, but we can do it. Next Wednesday, Tom will be standing here, because I will be in Long Island the Wednesday after that, Michael will be standing here because I will be in Chattanooga. But I don't plan to miss any Sundays unless suddenly Josiah and I decide to go sightseeing. <laughs> and you never know. We might decide, hey, we're in Long Island. Let's go see the Grand Canyon. <laughs> you, you don't know. We may. <laughs> we, once we're on the road... Who knows? Introduction to chapter 12. I have, through the night, come up with many, many different introductions. Because let me tell you briefly a little bit about the process that I go through to prepare the next section of a book that I know I'm going to preach through. I, I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I pray about it, and pray about it, and I try to find the center of it. I try to find the primary point, so that when you leave here, you've got something to hold on to. But once I feel that I've discovered the center of it, I back away from the center of it and start constructing the introduction. And the introduction is designed specifically to get you from driving up and down the street and hurry up breakfast and we got to get the kids ready and we've got to just all the hubbub of life and then you come in here we sing a couple songs we pray together and then everybody sits down and it's my job to get you from all that life hubbub to a common thought I'm trying to bring you to that that central thought in the hopes that you will all have the same aha moment that you will all arrive at the center of the text the same time as each other. But I think, despite the complexities of this chapter, and it is quite complex, despite it, I think that we're all going to arrive 
at the same aha moment at the same time because the center of this chapter is God's grace. Even though it's about messengers of Satan, even though it's about visions of, of heaven, even though it's about revelations that are given to Paul, even though it's Paul arguing about his apostleship and comparing himself yet again to the super apostles that we met last week. Even though that's what the chapter is all about, I am convinced that the middle of the whole thing is about God's grace. Because we're going to see Paul talk about grace in yet another facet. Grace is like a diamond that shines many different facets and many different colors and many different ways. And whether you're looking at Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord all the way back in Genesis or whether you see the grace of God being kind to David despite his proclivities and, and even being a murderer and taking another man's wife and whether it's uh, salvation when we're talking about salvation we know that salvation is by grace it can't be by works it can't be by anything that we're doing but but Paul is now going to go far beyond that and say even the way that we endure even the way that we survive even the way that we find ourselves going through the troubles and the trials of this life and yet our faith is maintained and we look to God to get us through it. He says, that's grace. In other words, if you woke up this morning and knew your own name, that's grace. Amen. If you woke up this morning and there were no viruses felling you so that you couldn't get up out of bed and had to be rushed to a hospital somewhere, that's grace. If you got up this morning and the wolf is away from the door, and you had food in your refrigerator, and you got up and found something to wear and something to eat, that's grace. In other words, I don't think I can exhaust the topic of God's grace because his grace covers every aspect of our lives. The fact that we see each other on Sunday mornings and we like each other, that's grace. In my life, I've met plenty of people who don't like me. And yet, you all, I'm assuming here, like me. That's just grace. I know that's just God's grace. Jeff gave me that. But <laughs> who knows? Okay, so let's pick somebody we all like. Okay, so Gladys, the fact that you came in here today. Oldest, oldest. <laughs> the fact that we... In the middle of our week, we think of each other. We think about what Conrad's going through. We think about what Dwight has been going through. We think about what Gladys is going through. And we pray for one another. And God brings each other to our minds so that we will pray for each other. That's grace. That's God working graciously through his people. But this morning, we're going to see one of the most interesting and sovereign aspects of God's grace. That's why we are a sovereign grace church is because we believe that God's grace permeates every aspect of our life and God is sovereign over the events of our life. Because Paul is going to start this chapter by separating himself from these super apostles by saying, I've had revelations and visions that I've never even talked about. Something happened 14 years ago that he hasn't mentioned to any other church. He hasn't brought it up in any other letter. And now he's going to tell the Corinthians, this happened. And I think that the reason that he kept it a secret has to do with what comes right after it. Because what comes right after it is the high, high price he had to pay for that revelation. And because he paid such a high price, he went to God three times and said, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me is attacking me. Remove this thorn from my flesh. And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, and I, I know I'm going to harp on this this morning, but I want you to see all the aspects of it. In other words, God, who could have removed the pain from Paul, 
rather than remove the pain, said, I'll give you the grace to endure the pain, but you're going to go through the pain. And that's not the way we human beings think. I mean, we would think a good and a gracious God, if we cried out to him and said, I hurt, I'm in pain, and it's even a messenger of Satan sent to me, we would think that God would quickly remove that from us, restore us. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what he teaches Paul is that there's a high price to pay for the grand revelations that he has received. And in order to keep him from getting too proud, then God humbled him by using Satan. God, in his sovereignty, used Satan to punish Paul, to keep Paul humble. And Paul goes to God and says, remove it. And God says, no, but I'll give you the grace to endure it. That's way beyond how any of us could possibly think. I mean, God's ways are just past finding out. So certainly there's application galore here. I mean, we all go through troubles. We all go through trials. We all go through difficulties. And we all cry out to God when we go through those difficulties. But God doesn't always answer our prayer by doing what it is we ask. Instead, he answers our prayer by doing what it is we need. And for all you know, you may need to go through whatever you're going through. And God who is sovereign and God who is good and God who is in the enterprise of saving his people eternally knows what's best for those people. And sometimes what he needs to give us is grace to endure the very thing that he has brought into our life. So Paul has had to pay a very high price for this revelation. I think that's why he hasn't brought it up for 14 years. Because he knows that if he brings it up, it's going to sound like he's boasting. And the whole purpose of the thorn in the flesh is to keep him humble. And so it's counterintuitive for him to say, Okay, I've asked God repeatedly to remove this thing from me, which is humbling me, but I'm going to go out and boast about the very thing that caused this thorn to come about in my life. I think it's the reason he didn't bring it up. But now, now that the Corinthians have pushed him, now that the Corinthians have gladly allowed people to come in and slap them in the face, which is Paul's language, take advantage of them, to build themselves up, to compare themselves with themselves. Now that they have endured all of the super apostle boasting, Paul is saying, I'm not a whit behind any of them. And it's obvious by the fact that that you received the gifts of God. You received the pneumatikos. You received the spirituals. You spoke in tongues. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the healings. You have received the Holy Spirit of God. And how did you receive it? Did you receive it by the super apostles? No, you started accepting them after God had already brought you these gifts. And how did these gifts come to you? By the preaching of the gospel through me. I preached it to you, and it was followed by the power of the Spirit of God, which proves that my gospel is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. That's what we kept talking about last week. Christ is sufficient. You don't need to add anything. No ifs, ands, buts. Christ is enough. And so Paul now is going to start chapter 12 by saying, look, I know it's foolish, And I know I'm boasting. And boasting is not good. But sometimes I got to do it. And you forced me to do it by the fact that you are continuing to follow these self-made apostles. And I'm telling you that what I have said to you is not only backed up by the gifts you've received, But by the visions that I've had and by the spirit of God working through me and all of that has cost me tremendously. I've paid a very, very high price. By contrast, the super apostles, 
They're taking advantage of you. They're getting rich. And so Paul's going to bring it up again. I was no burden to you. I didn't cheat you. I didn't take anything from you. And then he's going to say, why? Why did I do that? I did that because I and Timothy and anybody else that came to you, none of us burdened you in any way. But let those guys come and be a tremendous burden to you. You will accept them happily. He uses the word beautifully. You accept people who cheat you, who don't tell you the truth. You accept them happily. But me, you keep rejecting, and I have paid such a very high price to bring the gospel all the way to you. So now, let's start reading at chapter 12, verse 1, and I think you'll be able to see that what Paul is getting at in bringing up this vision and bringing up the thorn in his flesh is in order to say, but God gave me grace. The very fact that I came to Corinth, which is a long way from Jerusalem, it's the furthest Paul went in his missionary journeys, but that's grace. And Paul was shipwrecked and jailed and stoned, and, and he endured it, and that's grace. And he kept preaching anyway, and that's grace. So I think I can sum up this morning's message as grace, 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 grace. Anyone else? Grace. Grace. And while I'm at it, I think this is a good juncture to add, there's a phrase that my parents used to say to me all the time, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And I know for me, and, and I can't speak for everyone here, but I assume it's kind of a human trait, part of our human frailty, that I think if I could just see something, show me something, like Moses saying, show me a bit of your glory. Show me something, God. Do a miracle. Do something. Show me. Just part the heavens for a moment. Let me see a bit of the glory. Let me see a little bit of who you are. Just because just I think that would so build up my faith. Just because I think that would so plant me in the things of God that, that I want God to, to just show me something. Paul's about to say... Yeah, God showed me something, and it cost me dearly. So be careful what you wish for, because Paul got it, and he paid for it. Chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. He admits it's not good. I shouldn't be boasting. But at this point in our conversation, and at this point with you dealing with the super apostles, I have to boast now. You've driven me to this. Now I'm going to have to boast a bit. Now remember that chapter 11 ended with, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so I escaped his hands. That's Paul saying, unlike the super apostles, who can keep boasting about how good and successful they are, everywhere I go, I've been in trouble. Everywhere I go, people have been hunting me down. And to be let down along the wall through a window is demeaning. And yet Paul is saying, Look, I was so weak, again, in contrast to the strength of the self-professed apostles, I was so weak that I had to be let down in a basket through a window outside the city walls just to escape. So Paul is pointing out his inherent weakness so that he can keep emphasizing, but when I'm weak, then Christ is strong through me because he knows the miracles that have happened by his hand. He knows the gifts of the spirit that have happened in his ministry. And he just wants everyone to know for certain, it's not me. It's not about me. It's about Christ. Christ is strong through me because I am constantly 
demeaned, and weak. So right on the heels of talking about his weakness, he says boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now before we get to verse 2, because it's an astounding vision, as I mentioned, Paul has not brought this up to any of the other churches, but he has had a series of visions and revelations in his lifetime. And I just want you to see a few of those so that you can, you can see the building revelations that Paul is getting until this particular one that he had 14 years prior and is finally talking about it. Tom, look up Acts 9, and you're going to read 4 to 7, if you would. Josiah, you have a Bible on you? You better say yes, because I'm not trusting you to drive if you don't. So. <laughs> Acts 16, 9 and 10. Steve, look up Acts 18, 9 to 11. And the rest of us, keep your finger right there and turn to Galatians chapter 1 with me. And we're just going to hear about some of the visions that Paul has had during his ministerial life. Because they are quite astounding. And they sort of culminate at the one he's about to tell us about. Acts 9 Read verses 4 to 7 for us, Tom. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So the first revelation Paul received was that Christ himself revealed himself to Paul. Notice that Paul was not looking for Christ. He was not a seeker. He was not looking for Jesus. He was looking to kill Christians. And then Christ revealed himself to Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Acts 16, 9 and 10. What does that say? And a vision appeared to Paul. In no, that's not going to work. Stand up, turn around, read loud. <laughs> and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is right on the heels of Paul a saying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Christ stopped him. You would think that Paul could go wherever he wanted and go preach Christ, but no, Christ was directing where Paul was going and where the gospel was going to go, and then Paul received a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And so we concluded that God wanted us to go there. Yeah, you think? So the next vision is, here is your ministry. I'm guiding you through your ministry. I'm taking you to the places where you're going to go and preach, which is why Jesus would say things to Paul like, don't be afraid. I have many people here because Christ is actively building his church and calling out people and then sending them apostles who will teach them the proper teaching and doctrine of Christ. Acts 18, 9 to 11, Steve. Which, by the way, takes place in Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack me to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So again, he stayed there in Corinth. Why? Because he got a vision from God. And the vision from God reassured him, I've got many people here. We're all in Galatians 1. Let's start reading around verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I didn't learn this gospel from some other man. I learned this gospel from Christ. And Christ is the 
instigator and the constructor, and Christ is the author of this gospel. So I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from a man, nor was I taught it by a man. For I received it, how? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ, even the gospel he was preaching. So think about it. Christ reveals himself. And then Christ says where to go to preach the gospel. Then Christ reassures him, now that you're here, I've got plenty of people here and no one's going to hurt or harm you, so preach it. And then Paul says, and the very gospel that I preach to the people that God chose is the gospel that God taught me. The very thing that Christ revealed to me is the very thing that I've brought to the people that God has chosen to whom he has directed me by a vision after he introduced himself to me by a vision. So Paul's whole ministry is constructed around these revelations and visions, which is why Paul can say so confidently, it's not about me, it's about Christ. But then we're going to learn, and Christ kept him weak so that he wouldn't start thinking it was about him. Verse 13 of Galatians 1 says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. So Paul's very, very clear that he has learned this gospel directly from Christ. Christ has guided him in his ministry Christ has guided him in his evangelistic efforts. God has steered him to the places he would go and told him what to say. But there's this mysterious little moment where he talks about being in Arabia. And we don't hear anything about what he did in Arabia. But we know that he was in Arabia for three years. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem. What was he doing? What was going on during those three years? What's going on right now back in the nursery? What's, what? Happiness. <laughs> Happiness has broken out in the nursery. We have Pentecostal children in the nursery. What was he doing for three years in Arabia? I, I speculate that that was all part of his training time that that's when Christ was teaching him this gospel and all this doctrine. I don't think that Christ just implanted it to him one afternoon. Boom, you know everything you need to know now. I think he was taught it over the course of time, the same way that we're taught it over the course of time. Now, that's just me speculating because Paul doesn't tell us what he was doing. But rather than confer with flesh and blood, once Christ was revealed to him, he went away from everybody for a while. And then three years later, he goes up to meet Peter in Jerusalem. And then he starts his missionary journeys. Now, turn to 2 Corinthians again. And Paul is going to add another wrinkle to this entire series of revelations. And like I said, it took him 14 years to even talk about this, which means that it happened fairly early in his uh, ministerial career. I think it's a sign of Paul's humility that he doesn't say, 
I'm the one I'm talking about. I'm a fair literalist with the text. And one of the ways that I approach this next part of the chapter was to think Paul said he knows a man, so he knows a man. It had to be some other man. But then right behind it, Paul talks about the price he paid for the revelation. So commentators across the board agree that Paul's talking about himself, but he's trying very hard to stay humble about it. And so he says, I know, not I knew, not 14 years ago I knew a man, but I know somebody right now. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, then this mysterious phrase, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. In other words, he had a vision, a revelation, where he doesn't know if his spirit left his body. He doesn't know if his body accompanied him. All he knows is he went to the third heaven. Now, let's talk about three heavens. In the Bible, all the way through the Bible, there are three heavens spoken of. The first heaven is the heavens where the birds fly. We would call that our atmosphere. The second heaven is where the stars and the planets are. We would call that our universe. And the word heavens is just used for it, the stars of the heavens. We still talk that way. Third heaven is where the throne of God is. Third heaven is where God resides. And Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. But then it gets even more mysterious because he says, I don't know if I was out of my body. I don't know if I was in my body. But I know such a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Okay, now that word caught up is important to us because it is the Greek word harpazo. Where else do we see the word harpazo? Yeah, somebody look up 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Mike is going to look that up. And Paul is going to use this exact same word, this harpazo word, in order to talk about the catching away of the church. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. And then I think right after that he says, comfort one another with these words. Yeah. So Paul uses that same word, that same concept, in order to say, I know a man 14 years ago who was caught up. Now, this word harpazo is a real specific Greek word because it means to seize upon something with force, snatch it away. Like, if I reach down and grab this hymnal, how much activity did the hymnal put into that snatching away? How much power does the hymnal have to stop when I pick it up? None. None. That's the word. It's the word being snatched away by a force greater than yourself so that you have no activity in it. You are the passive recipient of the snatching away. So Paul uses that word to say, I know a man who 14 years ago was snatched away off the planet and visited the third heaven. Now, that's a pretty good vision, that right there. But then Paul says something even more mysterious. This man was caught up into the third heaven, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, I know how such a man was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, we don't know if that means I heard angelic language. I heard things in heaven that, that I didn't comprehend and can't speak because it's not human language. Or whether he was saying, I heard things of such a revelatory nature that I'm not allowed to say anything about it. So again, I know whenever we get to the book of Revelation and we read about thunder speaking, 
I always say, I want to know what the thunder said because God simply has not told us everything. God has told us as much as we need to know in order to get us from here to his eternity. And what he hasn't told us belongs to him. The secret things belong to God. And he has revealed to us the things we need to know to get there. But he hasn't told us everything. There's stuff going on in heaven that would probably just blow our minds. We would have to duct tape our heads closed to keep them from exploding. And yet Paul says, I went to the third heaven and I heard things that are inexpressible by human language. That's really mysterious. Okay, so you super apostles, what do you got? But then look, because of that, verse 5, on behalf of such a man will I boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. So Paul is emphasizing his own inability, his own weakness, his own fleshly tiredness, the beatings he's taken, the stonings, the being let down through the, through the window in a basket. He keeps emphasizing, I'm nothing. I'm not important. I persecuted the church. I'm not the reason this is happening. Again, unlike the boastful, comparing themselves to themselves, false apostles that have infiltrated Corinth in my absence. They keep building themselves up, and I'm telling you I'm nothing, so that Christ gets all the credit, so that Christ gets all the glory. And I think one of the reasons that Paul said, I know a man who did this, was so that he could tell the story and not put it in the first person because he doesn't want to boast about himself. So on behalf of such a man will I boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. What do they see in him? Remember what he said two chapters ago. They say, Paul's visage, the way Paul looks, he looks weak, and his speech is contemptible, and he's not denying it. They say his letters are weighty, but, you know, he's, eh, we're not real impressed with him. And he's saying, yes, that's the point. The point is, yes, I'm weak. The point is, yes, there's nothing in me. Everything that you have, everything that you've received whether the gifts, whether the spirit, whether the word of life you received from Christ through me, but it's not about me. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, you see the S on the end of that? The apocalypsis, the, the unveiling of Christ. Because of the greatness of the several visions I have had, which is why we read through the different revelations and visions that Paul has had. He said, because of the greatness of these visions, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. So Paul knows firsthand that if he starts boasting and he starts doing what the false apostles do, and if he starts saying, it is about me, follow me, if he starts saying, I'm the person who you should be bowing down and scraping to, and I'm the one who you should be making rich, and I'm the one who needs a satellite ministry, and I'm the one, there were no satellite ministries in the first century, but. I'm now starting the first institute of Paul. 
Instead of building himself up, he knows full well that because of the greatness of the visions that have been given to him and because of his former life and the way that he persecuted the church, that Christ is now actively keeping him humble by making him suffer. So why would he boast? As soon as you start boasting, Christ is forced to hold you down again. So he's trying not to boast, and yet he felt that he had to bring up this vision, the third heaven, things men can't speak. So he said, I'm going to boast about that. I'm going to boast about that man, whoever that man is, but I'm sure paying a high price for whatever that man saw. So I think Paul's talking about himself. I think it's inescapable that he's talking about himself, or else why would he say, yeah, because of the greatness of that vision, I'm suffering for it. But it was that guy that saw it. No, I think he's talking about himself. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. There's been a lot of speculation about what the thorn in the flesh is. I've heard everything from... It was the mistrust and the faithlessness of the uh, Corinthians. That was his thorn in the flesh. That's why he had to write these letters. I've heard malaria because of the areas in the Middle East as he was going into Caesarea to try to get away from the damp climate. Maybe it was because he was sick like that. Writing to the Galatians, he talks about the fact that he was apparently losing his eyesight. And he says, if it were possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And certainly after all the beatings and certainly after everything he's been through, stoned and left for dead and all of that, yeah, I can see where he's probably having some vision problems. That might be his thorn in the flesh. What we know is whatever it is, God is responsible for it and God used Satan to accomplish it, proof yet again that Satan can't do anything except that God allows him to do it because Satan, get this right, is just a footstool to the sovereign God. Amen. And the sovereign God uses Satan to accomplish the things that God intends to accomplish. And yet God, who can at any point take it away from Paul, doesn't take the thorn in the flesh away from Paul. Why? Because it's doing what it was meant to do, which is keeping Paul humble. And so God says, I'm not taking it from you. I'll give you the grace to endure it. But it has a purpose. It has a reason. Now, many years ago, when I was talking about sovereignty and suffering, and I think even before that, I first got a hold of this concept, and it was life-altering to me. The first time that I recognized that I understood, and that now I've lived it out first person, that if suffering has no purpose, if suffering is purposeless, then there is randomness in God's universe. And you are going through your suffering for no good reason. That's the way people all too often think of suffering. That they're suffering just because. It just happened. I caught a bug. I came down with a thing. I have a disease. I, why me? But the way it's presented in the Bible over and over and over again is God is absolutely sovereign and in control of what happens to his people and still all things work together for the good of those who are the called according to God's purpose. That's still equally true. It's the same Paul who said it despite the fact that he says, I'm suffering. I've suffered time and time again over and over. And then on top of that, I have the care of all the churches. And then on top of that, I have this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me is the King James language. What it means is sent to punch me around, sent to beat me down. So he knows it's from Satan. He doesn't say it's from God. He says it's from Satan, but God's in control of it. 
So he didn't go to Satan to say, please remove this thing. He went to God, who is sovereign over it, to say, please remove this thing. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You're going to graciously endure this thing because it's doing its job. It's keeping you humble while I'm giving you these great, great revelations. Now, I imagine, this is just me imagining for a moment, but I imagine that when Paul was back in prison in Rome and a date was set and he found out that he was going to be beheaded by Nero, I suspect that there was a part of him, because he certainly says it, better to depart, leave this body, be with the Lord, separate from the body, present with the Lord. You, you know that after everything he endured, and after the thorns in the flesh and the beatings and the stonings, and the, just after everything he endured, there had to be a part of him that was like, fine, take my head, because I'm going home. I'm done with this. That's enough of this. And I think that's one more aspect of the suffering. Look, if you were always happy, if it was always rainbows and bluebirds, if everything was going your way constantly, you had ample amounts of money and stuff and perfect health, you don't want to go to heaven. Like, no, no, I got it, I got it real good here. Why would I want to give this up? Why would I want to go to a place where I'm equal with everybody else? When I'm here, I'm better than everybody else. Why would I want that? No, I think the suffering is purposeful. It's not purposeless suffering. And the purposeful suffering teaches us how to endure, how to appreciate the grace of God, how to have faith in God through the suffering, and how ultimately to not cherish our own lives but to cherish the things of God and our eternal home and destiny with him. I think that's what the suffering accomplishes. On top of keeping us from ever going, dig me. <laughs> I am a handful of aces. I've got it all together. God makes sure that we stay humble and that we stay dependent on him, that we stay reliant on his grace, that our faith is grown, that we learn things, that he's teaching us, and then the very faith that he gives us to get us through that, he then uses that faith to exchange for righteousness, and then he brings us into his kingdom, puts Christ's righteousness on us in exchange for that faith that we've had, and it's all his doing, grace, 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 grace. Even the suffering is grace. And I know that's hard for us. I know it's hard for us to get to that, but the suffering has purpose. And it's part of the grace of God that is getting us from here to home. And it's making us long for home. And I know me, I can't talk for everybody in the room, but I want to go home. If I'm getting up a group this afternoon, I don't know how many of you are joining me. Suddenly it got real Jim Jones there. I'm sorry about that. Um, anyway, this afternoon, Kool-Aid, join me. Um, <laughs> okay, so that won't make it to the internet. Maybe. I might leave it. Who knows? But yes, I want to go home. Why do I want to go home? Because I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. Because uh, things aren't, as, aren't working the same way that they did when I was 21. Can I get a witness, Josiah? Okay. Yeah, he's all young and vital and ready to do jumping jacks at a moment's notice. I need a nap. That's all I'm saying. I want to go home. But you know, it's the suffering and the enduring that makes home seem so sweet. So the suffering has purpose, so Paul would say, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me and to keep me from exalting myself. Because that's the natural tendency of humans. 
And we've all seen it in the church daily, regularly, the people who, because they either believe or they have a gift or they have some bit of knowledge, next thing you know, human beings just get puffed up. And they can't wait to get on Facebook and tell you how much better they are than you because they've got something. They figured something out. They've come to a realization that apparently nobody in human history has come to before. And they can't wait to exalt themselves. But Paul says, it's Christ. It's all Christ. I'm in my weakness, and Christ gets all the glory. And Christ is so determined to get all the glory that he will even make me suffer this way to keep me from exalting myself. So, lesson, let's put the lesson here. Let's put flesh and blood on this. Let's put shoe leather on it and walk it out. Here it is. Don't exalt yourself or you're asking for trouble. Because if God has to, out of love for you, and out of determination to get you to the glory that you are predestined to, for that reason, he will teach you that you're not supposed to boast about yourself. So the lesson would be, shut up! The lesson would be, if you're talking, talk about Christ. If you're talking, talk about how good God has been to you. But don't be building yourself up like you're something because he can drop you like a two-inch putt. And that, by the way, was a reference for Wolfgang. Yeah. I can't make a two-inch putt. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he put me. <laughs> there you are. Yeah. God has no problem at all just taking you out. You become too big for your bridges, he will stop you. And he knows how to stop you. He knows how to make you lay down. He knows how to take your life away from you. He knows how to take your speech away from you. He knows how to keep you from exalting yourself. You'd think that at some point we would wise up and make sure that when we boast, we're boasting about him. So concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Three times. He went to God. You know he had to be agonizing to go to God three separate times. I mean, after the first time that God said no, shouldn't that have been good? He went back twice more. So maybe you misunderstood me the first time. I'm serious here. Please remove this thing from me. If it is blindness, if it is sickness, think about Paul on the Isle of Malta. Think about all the people that were healed at his hand. Think about the snake that came out of the fire and bit him. And he, he didn't react to it at all. Didn't get poisoned. Everybody on the island thought he was going to fall down and die. Nothing happened to him. So he knows that God can miraculously take the thing from him. He's seen it. He's experienced it. He knows that God can do it. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I know I have. I've said, God, I know you can do it. I know that if you want, you can do this. But then he doesn't. And so I have to acquiesce to his sovereignty and say, well, then this has some purpose. But it's hard. We don't know what the thorn was. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Now, the phrase is, for power is perfected in weakness. I added the pronouns just so you would understand it. The power of God is perfected in the weakness of human beings. Perfected, made complete, brought to its culmination in the weakness of people. And we like to think that's not how it's supposed to work. I'm supposed to be strong, and I'm supposed to be powerful, and I'm supposed to be able, and I'm supposed to be sufficient, and I'm supposed to be able to go out there and compete in this world. And God says, not in my world. 
in my economy, <coughs> my power is perfected through your weakness. And if that is true, since it comes right from the lips of God, if you don't mind the anthropomorphism, since it comes right from God and he says, my power is perfected in your weakness, don't you think he's going to make you weak? He's going to make you weak so that he's perfected in his power, so that he gets all the glory, so that he gets all the worship, so that he gets all the praise, and you get none because the whole process is made to lessen you and increase him. Think of John the Baptist saying, I must decrease, he must increase. What were you saying? Inner man and outer man. Yes. The outer man is fading away day by day. And the inner man is being strengthened day by day. So Paul could say, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And I'm tempted just to camp there for a while and ask you typical preacher questions. How many of you hate preacher questions? <laughs> How many of you hate it when the preacher asks you to raise your hand? Apparently all of you. <laughs> and now you did it, so I won. <laughs> Yeah, my grace is sufficient for you. I, I feel that I want to ask the question of all of you, is his grace sufficient for you? Because life gets tough. Because life gets hard. And there's plenty of curveballs that we don't see coming. I know I've said it time and time again, but most every terrible thing that happened in my life, I didn't see coming. These things just happen to us. And the question is, are you content in the grace of God, which is sufficient for you? Sufficient is a very important word. God is saying, my grace is enough. My grace is good enough for you. You're going to go through this, like it or not. You have no choice in the matter. You're going to go through it. And you're going to come out the other side, or I'm going to bring you home. Those are the only two options. You're either going to recover from it, or you're going to glory. Those are your options. But either way, it's God who is leading you through it, guiding you through it, and making sure that you are in your proper position, which is a position of humility and weakness, so that he gets all the glory for everything that he does through you. Does that make sense? Yes. It's very humble. It's very humbling because, again, we're egocentric humans. We're full of ourselves. And we think when we go to God that we're going to tell God what we would like God to do. And so Paul goes to God. Here's what I'd like you to do three different times. And God says, nope. But my grace is sufficient to get you through it. Most gladly, therefore, says Paul in the second half of verse 9, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That's the power he wants. That's the power he craves. He wants the power of Christ working in him and through him because left to himself, he's got nothing. Left to himself, he is weak. Left to himself, he is unattractive, and his speech is contemptible. But the reason that there's so much power in his letters, that 2,000 years later, we're still studying them. We're still talking about them. Our faith is being built up by them. The reason that there is power in his words is because Christ was working through him to inspire the words that he wrote, and that's what gives the letters the weight. And it's all Christ. It's all grace. And so he says, if I'm going to boast about something, I'm going to boast about how weak I am. Which again, like you said, is, is counterintuitive to how we are as humans. We don't typically get online and say, let me tell you about myself. I got nothing. Missed a two-inch putt. I, I, I missed a two-inch putt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just high-fived Gladys. That was good. Wow. Yeah, let me tell you about myself. I'm, I, I'm weak. My speech is contemptible. I got nothing. I take beatings regularly. 
So invite me over, because I'm fun at a party. People get online or any place else or talk to other humans, and they talk about themselves, their accomplishments, what they've done, how hard they work, how well their family's doing, how well the house is doing. Look at the car I drive. Me, me, me. And God withstands that among his people because God says, no, it's me, me, me. And you don't get to go around boasting about you, 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 because as I said an hour ago, absolutely everything you have in this life, everything you can do in this life, everything that you're capable of is grace, grace, grace. So it's still God who is giving you the ability to do it. Why do you think that it's you? It's not. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me, and therefore I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Again, counterintuitive. When I'm at the end of myself, that's when I'm strongest. When Christ is working through me, then I'm at my best. When the power of God works through me, and I can teach, and I can preach, and I can do miracles, and I can bring people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, when that happens, when lights go on and everybody gets it, when, when that happens, I know it's not me. I'm too weak to do that. But when Christ works through me in my weakness, that's when I'm at my strongest, he says. Now, that's not something that you just figure out one day. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm probably at my best when I'm at my least. But it's what the Bible says, and it's something that you will experience in this lifetime if God loves you. If God is saving you, and if all things are working for your good, he's going to teach you this lesson. And he's going to teach it to you the hard way, or you're going to learn the lesson because it's in his word, and you're going to keep yourself in a state of humility before him. Or else, he's going to have to teach you. And boy, none of it is fun, and none of it is enjoyable, but the outcome of it is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So it's worth it. Look, as soon as you step into heaven, as soon as you draw your last breath, open your eyes, and see Jesus, your first thought's going to be, worth it. <laughs> that was worth it. Tough life. Worth it. Every bit of it. The suffering, worth it. Being demeaned, being made fun of, Paul says, I'm content with that. I'm content with insults. There's a phrase that I like. I've heard it from a few different people. But they said, whenever anybody insults me or makes fun of me, I just thank God that they don't know the rest of it. <laughs> so we've really got nothing on which we can stand and say, I don't deserve this. You do. You deserve hell forever. And God, in his grace, is giving you the kindness of teaching you and instructing you because you're his beloved children. It would have been awful raising my kids if I never taught them right from wrong, if I never taught them respect for their elders, if I never taught them how to do chores. If I never taught them that, they'd grow up to be brats and they'd both be in jail by now. But... If you teach your children the way that they ought to go, then they grow up like Exhibit A over here, who I'm proud of. Well, that's what God is doing. He's instructing you. He's teaching you. And I think both my kids would agree that much of the instruction that they received growing up was not pleasant. <laughs> but they learned. And that's what God's doing. He's teaching you because he loves you. He's teaching you because he's chosen you out of all the people on the planet. 
And by his grace, his unerring grace, he's teaching you through the things that you suffer. That's the heart of that passage. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. I went to the third heaven and heard unspeakable things. That's grace. I endure the thorn in the flesh. That's grace. I'm content with insults and hardships and beatings. That's grace. It's all grace, 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 grace. You get it? Got it. Do you get it? Look, I didn't make anybody in this room hold up your hand, okay? I didn't do that. So I'm asking you now, do you get it? Because it's a tough lesson. There's not people out here saying this stuff. It's what the Bible says. But this is not typical preaching. Among people who are saying it's the feel-good message. God loves you and everything's going to be great in your life. That's just not what the Bible says. And I beg you, I pray that you get it. Because it's the way life really works. Yes, Cohen? Sometimes I hear people when they're going through things try to, oh, God's allowing this or Satan's attacked in. Does it really matter? I mean, I know God's sovereign over whether Satan wants to do something like he did to Job. Or, but does it really matter just that we, can we really know, is this just something God's allowing or is this Satan attacking or trying to pull me down or should we just... Yeah, I don't think that Satan, no, I'm going to correct that statement. I know that Satan does not act as an independent agent. And he does not just bring trouble into your life because he got up one day and felt like it. Everything that happens is under the domain of God's sovereignty. And so while it may be, like Paul just said, it's a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. He also recognizes that it's God who's sovereign over that, which is why he goes to God to remove it, because God can. And God can give him the grace to endure it. So I would not use language that makes it sound like Satan's attacking me because he wants to. Oh, no, what's happening, God? You know, I, I would say that God has designed this for my life at this time, and I just pray that he gives me the the endurance and the grace to get through it because it's all under his domain. Make sense? Perfect. Yeah. I like that answer, by the way. I said, does that make sense? She said, perfectly. That's an answer I like. You can stay. <laughs> Anything else? Any other questions? All right, then. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.